Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Uh, Loretta Wurtenberger, you run Fine Art Partners uh, in Germany, uh, which does a number of different things, which we'll discuss in a minute. But I wanted to thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk to me. Thank you, Marion, for talking to me. <laughs> you... Uh, you do a lot of work with both uh, artists and art dealers. And one of the reasons I wanted to uh, have this discussion is uh, I think you do something, if not unique, at least uh, different in the mar- marketplace. Uh, and I wanted to both give the listeners a sense of uh, what you do, but also your observations on how the art market functions, um, particularly the way that public sales have become uh, very important. And in in a previous conversation, you told me that you see many more dealers using the auctions as a way to, uh, you know, get the best price or, or or conduct the best sale. And I thought as a, as a way in, if you could um, sort of describe that for me again, and then we can talk a bit more about what you do. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. If you look at to how it worked like 10, 15 years ago, you see that um, at those times, the auctions were a place where dealers were buying and then they were selling privately. This has changed totally 180 degrees. Today, the auctions are one of the most successful methods at the moment of selling works. Um, and if the dealers don't want to come into a pure competition games with the auction houses, the clever dealers start using that method of selling, although it's against their traditional way of selling. And they use their very good contacts to collectors, even sometimes museums, to buy privately and then to sell publicly at auction. And we've been seeing that really get kind of into fashion for the last two years much more than it has always been before. Well, a big part of your business is partnering with dealers uh, to finance some of those purchases um, and then to, I assume, advise on those um, sales. Uh, what is it you see in that process? Is it the the fact that they are, think they can get a better price or is there another reason to have a public sale, to establish that, that, that price so that they can go back and look for another piece uh, that's similar or related? First of all, let me comment on on your um, description of us advising on the sale. Our clients often don't really need our advice. They're very established, very successful galleries and art dealers. We support them mostly financially and then go into a kind of passive, inactive role and only come out of that inactive, passive financing role if the dealer wishes it and if it's part of our relationship with the dealer. And each of these relationships are kind of different because each of them are different characters. But and to come to the core of your question, um, the auction houses at this current state of the market have such a global reach to potential buyers that almost none, even of the big galleries, can replicate this global reach. Um, And sometimes dealers have access to works which are not their core, core know-how. There are some dealers training very strongly 
let us say, with an artist like Arf. Then they buy something privately, they know exactly the 20 serious deal, um, um, collectors of Arp in the world. They can offer them, they sell it privately very successfully in a short time period. But let us imagine a dealer or a gallerist who is normally dealing with contemporary art um, gets offered a Arp through a trusted collector to whom he normally sells contemporary art and who has maybe inherited this Arp from his father or his mother. And then he would be stupid not to say, if he has a, gets a good price and it's a wonderful work, to say, I'll, I'll acquire it, I'll buy it. But it's, although it's not in the core of my collectors to whom I normally sell. And in that case, he has two options. One would be teaming up with other dealers he knows who have that core competence, but that normally means he would share his upside. Or he would team, um, or he would go to the auction houses and use the um, huge audience of the auction houses to sell that work to which he has access and had the chance to buy up front, and by that making his margin. It's few and far between, especially now, the family that has an ARP that they uh, inherited, and there's such demand for work uh, throughout the uh, art market. Is is there a squeeze going on where dealers, they seem certainly seem to be holding less in the way of stock, and they don't have as much access to it now that everyone has piled into the auctions. You, you know, I suppose even in the day sales, there are people uh, competing with dealers uh, uh, for work. So I- unless you have a, a great source for uh, something privately or independently, you're, you're basically working at the same public price. Um, what you're describing, unfortunately, is true. And I find that it really, really sad side of this market development at the moment, which on many sides is a good market development also, because if you look at um, successful dealers who have established their business for 30, 40, sometimes even longer years, they are really hub of deep, deep know-how with artists and their markets. And if you look at big collections in his art history over the 20th century especially, you often find that there was always one or two very knowledgeable dealers behind these collections, building wonderful assemblies of art, which then mostly also often went to museums. So there's, and that was only possible because of this very dense and, and close relationship between a dealer and his collector, which was built up over a long period of time, and which I seldom see in somebody from a auction house together with a collector. And so I find it really a pity if a squeeze out, which is not happening yet, but some are afraid of it, of too many dealers would happen through the auction houses because a kind of culture of art dealing in a very traditional, wonderful, old-fashioned way, which have built up wonderful collections, would fade. Um, And you're right, the auction houses are doing a lot to get a larger market share. And it often means that the dealers certainly can't successfully buy a lot at auction. They have to um, rely on their private sources. And they're forced to, and that again is something positive for our business, if they want to compete against the auction houses. One of the key methods often is to be able to to, to pay immediately. And if they go to um, to, to a collector and say, well, I want this work in consignment, 
the chance of then winning against the auction house who also says, I can guarantee you this and this price, for example, through this inflational use of guarantees in the auction houses, or I will give you a huge estimate on this, no matter if they will get it later or not. A dealer has a very bad position often. If he, on the other hand, goes out and says, well, I'm willing to pay now and within a week or within two weeks and takes it into his stock on his risk, then he has a realistic chance of getting still the works he would need in his stock to be able to compete longhand. I was interested you just brought up guarantees. What's your view of uh, the guarantees? You describe them as inflationary. Is that uh, a bad thing or is that uh, something that helps you once you're in the position of being a principal? Um. I have a kind of amoral view on guarantees. I don't I find them bad or good. I just um, watch that they're getting very strongly used by the auction houses because the competition because um, between both houses is fierce and guarantees have become one method of trying to convince sellers to consign to a certain auction house. And the dealers have been taking advantage of that. Why shouldn't they? Um, they use this to have a guaranteed selling price. And um, often, I, and we were um, very, very, very happily also advantageous of that, been able to negotiate very, very good guarantees, which um, already gave a solid return with substantial upside potential on top. So, yes, it's a phenomenon. Menon, why not use it at this current stage of the market? Are, are you also participating in third-party guarantees? Are you providing the guarantee uh, to uh, works no, at auction? No, we haven't been doing this up to now because our clients are really the dealers and the galleries. Well, as someone who could potentially do that, is something that interests you, something that's just too complicated and you want to stay away from, or there's a risk factor? I mean, it's interesting to me, you're essentially having a an auction or a sale before the sale. And one of the problems with that is just by the very nature of it, it has to be limited to a very few people. Otherwise, you're having a, a public sale uh, right then. And that's the only part that seems to frustrate people is that, you know, only a select few people get to participate in those um, uh, guarantees. Yeah, but I wouldn't underestimate that you kind of have a semi-public auction in some guarantee negotiation processes. Because um, the houses try to get the guarantees off their balance sheet. And if, if you don't insist of them not doing it, they will, before they give out, they sign the contract of the guarantee, go out and try to place the guarantee with third parties. And there they will talk to the relevant players in the market of that certain artist. So you kind of have a semi-public already going on up front. If, if you're a strong negotiator, I can only advise to insist on not um, placing the party, the guarantee to third parties before they sign the guarantee contract. Because? Because it means that many people in the market know already about the work and um, can, can formulate an opinion on it and start talking about it. And we all know that the art market lives of discreteness. And um, the discreter you handle a work the most better it can be placed at the end in a possibly wonderful private collection. So one of the other things that you do, uh, in part because there's there's uh, this limited amount of work out there and available, is you you all uh, provide financing for fabrication for our artists, correct? 
Yes, we started off in this pure secondary market when we started the business eight years ago. And um, it was very interesting. Through the demand of our clients, they, after a certain time, they certain, suddenly came up with new ideas, um, ideas of financing fabrication in the primary market for big sculpture projects, um, for um, acquiring whole shows up front, supporting artists in their studios financially. And um, since we are a privately owned and privately financed company, we were very free in opening up to, to new ventures in that field. And um, it has turned out to be a wonderful um, second branch, actually, next to the secondary market financing to do the primary market financing. And um, the interesting thing is or what, what we like about it is that we mostly do it in a kind of triangle that's always the gallery, the artist, and us involved. The situation we step in is mostly twofold. Onefold is imagine a European gallery um, representing an artist of which the primary gallery is, for example, Gagosian in New York. Um, as you know, the primary gallery distributes the work to further galleries in the world. And if you, as the example given European gallery, are capable of um, buying upfront three, four works, you can negotiate with the primary gallery in New York a different dealer discount. You might be able to negotiate 35, 40% instead of 30, 35% because you made a financial commitment upfront. So you have the chance additionally to secure better and more work possibly. So that's the situation we help and support. Another situation is we all know that with the very successful young artist, there's a fierce competition among galleries to secure these artists for their gallery. And next to all the different un other services a gallery can provide by giving access to museums, organizing um, curated shows, all those things, it's also a financial game, meaning that a um, gallery is able to provide financing to the um, artist up front, for example, by sell telling him, no matter how much in the so show is sold, we will buy the show into our stock. If some is not sold and pay you up front, that supports the position of the gallery towards a very sought-after artist. And, and then you become the owner of those uh, unsold works that uh, uh, you can later be sold on the secondary market. Well, that's a detail I wouldn't want to go into an interview. <laughs> let's let's switch for a, a second and talk about um, uh, artists' estates because I know the other part of your business is uh, advising uh, artists' estates and helping them manage uh, the the estate. I, I know that you've done uh, or are in the midst of doing a lot of work with the ARP estate. Could you sort of walk me through your relationship with them and what you were able to, to do and where you uh, uh, see it going next? Yeah, the estate management side is, is one which is particularly close to my heart. Um, I find it extremely fulfilling to work with estates on a long-term basis. And it's something which is very parallel to, um, no, not not parallel to our financing business. It doesn't have to do anything with financing in the first place. It's really much about using our know-how about the art market in the best way for the estates. And 
what we have been doing with the op estate, which we do with the estate of Sophie Teuber op, which we do with the estate of Keith Arnett, which we do with the estate of Wolfgang Tümpel, is that if you want to successfully manage a state, you always, and it's again with every state the same, successfully manage three pillars. One is the contact to the museums, making sure that even the artist has passed away, he stays in favor of curators and enable each museum curator generation to kind of refine their way to interpreting the artist and seeing the artist and keeping by that discourse alive within the museum world and also coming to the second pillar in the academia. Um, the academic world is very strongly interlinked. We all know many wonderful publications come out of the museum world. On the other hand, the people in the art historical departments look at what's being exhibited and the, the aim of a stage should always be keeping the discourse within academia and the museum world alive and not having the artist being forgotten by these very two strong and important institutions. And the third pillar is the art market. Um, prices are made in the art market. We all know that prices rise, awareness rises, again by museum people. It's, it's really a triangle between those three pillars. And managing a state means to um, service these three, three pillars in a best way for remembering the artist and supporting his work and also having his market support because mostly the estates sit on a large stock of work financing themselves through from time to time selling work and if you are able to support the markets having them rise by having the right galleries in place by having the right auction results all that you stabilize them financially on a mid and long term. Making works available on the one hand side, on the market side, as well as the museum side, is, is a very important part of a politic of the state. Um, if you look, for example, we had two weeks ago the news about the Rauschenberg estate selling six to six museums, older, later works um, of the later period of Rauschenberg. Um, if you see how, what PR that react and what, what media reaction that evoked and that six museums um, were interested in these later works, suddenly people I'm sure will look differently at the later works of Rauschenberg. And with Arb it was the case that um, the whole question of, um, of casting rights and posthumous editions and all that were intransparent. And the most important thing is to create confidence in an um, in a artist estate and posthumous works is by creating transparency. So for us within the office estate, it was one of the most important things to do was to publicize a catalogue resume and to open up all the own archives. Uh, we published the catalogue resume two years ago and that really made a fundamental difference. Today, this um, publication is quoted in every um, auction catalog where art is sold. It's quoted in every publication. And people know exactly what they have in front of them, how many versions were casted, what was the intention of art himself concerning posthumous um, finishing lifetimes edition posthumously. And the art estate really did a wonderful job in creating that transparency and very rigorously opening up the own archives. And they will even go a step further now from um, the fall on, give out scholarships to young art historians working with the estate. 
and um, promoting themselves conferences. The first one actually being next year 215 conference about ARP in America, because um, the United States were the most important market actually for ARP in the 50s and 60s. He died 66. Um, and that relationship, which was undermined by um, actually a MoMA retrospective, I think in 63 it was, um, has never been looked at. So um, one of the steps to even go further in all that recognition is for the ARP um, Foundation to initiate conferences and really look at new angles at ARP. Uh, and, and museum shows as well? Absolutely. Um, for two um, 17, the National Sculpture Center is planning a big artwork for perspective. Um, in 2015, no, the Hepworth Wakefield, um, I, you know, I don't know if you know that, that's yeah. a very good museum in, in the middle of England, is planning a big artwork perspective. And the aim of the estate is to no longer, as it was, I have to say, in the past, often being a bit more passive, sitting there and waiting until loan inquiries came in, to go more actively out there and to really define themselves as a service to the museums, giving them all the information they need, a service to the auction outs, giving them all the information they need, and going very proactively out there and lending parts of the wonderful collection they have, which is actually the largest collection in the world of ARPS. And and is that um, is that sort of a big part of it? Uh, these estates not necessarily having a, a roadmap or, or or a plan that it uh, too often ends up being a few family members with really no experience, strong sense of of how to do this. Eventually, waking up one day and realizing there's um, there's a big job that they they don't really know how to get started on. I mean, I don't know if I always envy heirs to artist estates. I mean. Just imagine inheriting the estate of your father or your mother and her posthumously being part of your everyday life again every morning. I mean, um, many people are also happy when they're able to lead their own life independently from their parents when they're adults. So I find it very brave and admire greatly if heirs take over that responsibility. But this emotional link also means, this natural emotional link also means that it's sometimes difficult to step back and to have a more objective view about what is there to do, how should it be done. There are wonderful examples of great artist widows, great artist children, but there's many examples also where the children or the grandchildren were kind of stuck down with that burden. And it's very advisable to them to um, engage outside know-how and to also engage people who have a more emotional distance and to listen to what they advise. And um, the, the next thing is that um, many artist estates have often um, relied on tax advisors and only lawyers. Um, we, as the Art, the Art Foundation, for example, certainly also have lawyers very closely involved. Or, um, I've been a trained lawyer myself. I see the total value of lawyers in this, but sometimes it's important to also involve people who have a deeper understanding of the, um, the structures of the art market and the museum side. And if all those play together, the tax side, the law side, but also the art market side, also a strategic PR marketing side, then you can get the best out of it for the artist. So. Uh does that mean that it's sort of a, a unique set of talents that has put you in this position, or are there other people doing this kind of uh, estate advisory work? There are not many. 
I'm only able actually to name one whom I admire greatly, who is Barry Rosen in New York, who has really made the Eva Hesse estate, being an outside advisor to Helen Hesse, the sister of Eva Hesse. And if you look how he handled it and has him really made it what it is today over the last 20, 30 years, I, I admire him greatly. I'm a great fan. Um, aside from him, I don't see many, huh. um, which is actually a pity. Um, because I think there's so much out there to do in that field. Especially if this the, the expansion of the art market that we see, the demand side is getting bigger. Uh, uh, one of the limitations is just on the structure of the, the artist's estates and the work that's already either available or not fully understood. I mean, there, there's an infrastructure issue with the art market that the auction houses and dealers used to provide that for a number of different reasons isn't really uh, their primary uh, concern these days uh, and maybe ought not to to, to be uh, but no one else has actually stepped forward and and taken that on and and built the structures that would be the underpinning of uh, an artist market you addressed galleries representing artist estates um, it, it, I mean there there's a tradition of galleries representing artist estates but I think a advisor as we are, it is never in competition to a gallery. We don't surrogate a gallery at all. We, for example, with the Arbor State, we always work with galleries together, and we're very, very happy that two years ago, Ivan Wirt of Hazan Wirt took on the Arbor State and representing that estate on the art market. And we work very closely with Ivan and um, sit on the side of the estate when working with the gallery. So it's, I think it's important to stress that, that we're never in competition with the galleries here and that many galleries are happy if, if on the side of the estate they have somebody to talk to who professionally manages it. Um, I mean, there are some very good examples of estate who have been capable of structuring without outside advice. I'm thinking of, I also greatly admire the Judd estate um, what they have, they have had the burden of many, many um, real estates. They had, and if you yep. imagine, they own so many buildings. They've been able to restructure it. They've been able to restructure Spring Street. They do their academic work. They're very serious about the whole um, archive work. It's really, it's, it's very, very good. I find it really interesting what the Warhol Foundation is doing currently with this whole change in strategy and saying they want to sell off all the work to even beneficiary young artists more. It's, it's a total paradigm change going on. And I've seldom heard artists leave millions and millions of dollars cash sitting in the bag when they pass away. They leave wonderful works of art sitting in their ateliers and that's it. And then the estates suddenly have the burden of running an estate, which costs many hundred thousand dollars or euros a year if you do it kind of normal, even in a small structure, and, and, and one, two, three millions if you do it in a larger structure. And they are dependent on selling, but the outside world kind of expects them not to sell, which is kind of contradictionary. Um, so I found it, um, I always found, find it more honest, actually, if, if a estate like the Judd estate or also another wall estate doesn't kind of do it secretively and, and is kind of embarrassed for having to sell, 
but goes proactively out. I think even that going out proactively makes those sales more successful because people even have that little side effect of having the feeling if they buy a work out of such a sale of doing something good, of supporting the estate's work. And um, so I always say to estates, they have to sell from time to time and they have to sell to create endowments. Um, creating endowments then can uh, relieve them from selling more in the future. But if you do so, do it actively, stand behind it, and do it professionally. One last question. Um, in part of the press around some of the other estates, I think it was the Rauschenberg estate, but but uh, several of the estate and the, some of the controversies of estates in the last few years, um, there was a very good article that pointed out the, there, there's been a huge growth in the number of artists' estates in the last 20 years. I think the last 10 years, there's been a surge of it. And I presume some of it is just the, the tax laws, but it's also become a thing to, to do. One, are you seeing something similar in Europe? And two, do you, th- you know, what are the ramifications of more artists bef- long before uh, uh, they reach the end thinking about and establishing a, a estates uh, and either doing it, you know, more professionally or or waiting for someone else to take it over? Um, I think it's a development you see more in the United States, having to do with your tax laws. Um, I also have to say. And I'm currently writing a book on the topic, so I have a quite good overview. I've been writing on this now for the last one, one and a half years, and it's due to come out to 15 to 16, um, talking about comparing estates and um, talking about all the issues related to estates, that the American estates, the big estates, are really role models. They have figured out a lot in this field. They're, more, they're led, managed more professionally than many estates I see in Europe. In Europe, we have very good estates. Think of the Henry Moore Foundation, um, a wonderful institution with very, very professional structures, great success model. Um, but in general, I think Europe can learn, learn a lot from American estates. And part of my book is try to transfer that, that know-how over to Europe. Well, I can't wait to read the book, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this interview. Well, thank you, Marian. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com 